Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Julia Ebner. She is an author and research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where she leads projects on online extremism, disinformation and hate speech. She has acted as a consultant for the UN and the World Bank. Her journalism has appeared in The Guardian, Independent and Newsweek. And she was a key contributor to a documentary for ITV on militant responses to Brexit and a Radio 4 piece on women in the far right. In her first book called The Rage, she writes all about far right extremism and it was a bestseller and shortlisted for multiple awards. Her most recent book is called Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists and it's out now and we talk a lot about this book in this episode. And just to give you an idea of some of the reactions to this book, this is what the Irish News said. To complete her investigations, she assumed a variety of identities and goes undercover in a dozen tech-savvy extremist groups. Absorbing and intelligent, Ebner doesn't just analyse these things, she takes real risks to witness them up close. The result is a work that is terrifying because it is non-fiction. In this episode, we talk about Julia's incredible career, going undercover on the internet, what it takes kind of physically and emotionally to do her job, how she dealt with extreme trolling online, how she writes and researches her books, and what she's interested in researching next. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I found Julia very inspiring and I really enjoyed recording this episode and being able to speak to her. If you enjoyed listening, please do go and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps the podcast grow. So enjoy and I will see you next week. So I'm really excited to be joined by Julia Ebner, who has written an incredible book called Going Dark the secret social lives of extremists and this podcast is kind of all about internet related themes so I'm really really chuffed that you are coming on the podcast even though we are doing it remotely. I just wanted to start off by asking you how does one become a terrorism and extremism researcher? How did you first get into it? Yeah, that's a very good question. To be honest, it was all a complete coincidence. I never planned becoming a terrorism researcher when I was a kid, neither when I was studying. Actually, I was studying um, in China, focusing on Chinese international relations. And and then I uh, came to London for another master's degree in international history. And I started to focus on the history of terrorism and jihadism. And that was exactly at the time when ISIS was kind of at the height of their power, And that was really when I became interested in it. And my first job was then at the counter-extremism organization Quilliam, which was founded by former Islamists. So that's how I got into it. But I think it was was not a direct way into that job. It was really because then I saw also the far-right, far-right extremism kind of gaining ground in Europe. I thought it would be really interesting and and important to also look at that side of the extremist spectrum. So I started covering different forms of extremism and terrorism. Wow. Were there any reservations from like your family or friends or anyone before you got into this job? 
definitely my my parents and in general my family were really concerned it's not the kind of job that you do um getting straight out of university sharing an office with former islamist extremists um one of them was even involved with with al-qaeda had contacts to osama bin laden and i mean obviously they exited but still they also were threatened quite a bit by by some of the jihadist organizations they were kind of on the same um, targets list as uh, you could see Charlie Hebdo or or other threatened um, organizations in Europe being listed on by ISIS or by Al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, organizations. So my, my parents were quite concerned when I started getting into this rather dangerous terrain. But I think I just found that, especially at the time, uh, because there were so many European and, and British fighters who joined ISIS in Syria and Iraq, I found the topic really important. And then two weeks after I started my first internship there, the Paris attacks happened in the Bataclan. And actually back then I had a lot of friends and also my ex-boyfriend was in Paris at the time. And I was also, I became more involved also on a personal level. So I devoted my whole spare time basically looking at ISIS channels and looking at um, what they were planning next. Mm. And with your research, I mean, when did it kind of go deeper? Because... Obviously, there's like the surface level research that we can all do and we can all go on Twitter and social media and, you know, even Reddit and things like that. But when was the turning point where you kind of went into more of a deep dive where you kind of, you know, took on your online identities and like really went in? It started when I was for the first time confronted myself by an extremist um, storming our office at Quilliam. So that was Tommy Robinson, the founder of the English Defence League. He came to the office with a cameraman and live streamed everything. And I was then confronted with a huge hate campaign against myself on Twitter. And I really wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes. So that was, I think, the starting point of what motivated me to spend time trying to get deeper insights into extremist channels. Was that following an article that you'd written? Exactly. So I'd written an article for The Guardian uh, where I named Tommy Robinson as an example of how uh, white supremacist movements got from the fringe uh, to the mainstream and how some of his Twitter support was really increasingly uh, extreme. And he then came to the office and confronted me over that. And I knew already that this would have quite dramatic consequences for myself, but also for the organization, because he had 300,000 Twitter followers at the time. We then received a wave of attacks, both myself, but also my colleagues in the office. And I was then actually kind of urged to issue a statement um, saying that I regret having written that article. So almost giving in to Tommy Robinson. And I refused to do that uh, because I, I would not have been able to look myself in the mirror anymore. So I got fired, actually, or I got dismissed over this um, by Quilliam. And then I joined another organization, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And what was interesting there was that we could really use, and we can still um, use really sophisticated data analysis tools that allow us to, for example, track social media campaigns, radicalization campaigns, but also disinformation campaigns online and look at how they spread across different platforms. But I was still missing a bit the picture from what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening inside some of these channels that I couldn't really get any access to from looking looking at them from the outside. So that's why I decided to go undercover and to be recruited into some of these networks. Wow. And I, I read in an interview that you did I think maybe in The Guardian, where you said that 
creating an online identity and an online pseudonym and character you basically had to almost create a character like you would in a book or in a novel like you had to really kind of get into the role of whoever your your character was yes i think that's that's how i thought about it when when setting up all of these avatar accounts online because i thought if i i ever continue this offline i really need to remember who this person is what's their past what's their what are their um, motivations? What are their frustrations? Um, how does the person see herself in, in the future? Why does she want to join that movement? But even things like, where does she live? What does it look like there? How did she grow up? These are all questions that I thought I could be confronted with when then joining a movement um, offline. And you needed to have a coherent or to tell a coherent story to be credible. So it was a bit like making up a character for, for a novel indeed. Were there any moments where you were, you know, you wanted to turn back and actually kind of quit doing it or give up or anything? Or, or were you just quite motivated from the start? There were definitely moments where I thought, oh, maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I should not have come here, especially when I joined a neo-Nazi festival or when I went to a neo-Nazi rock festival at the border of Germany and Poland and there were lots of people who had a criminal record and we were queuing up to get into the, the territory where the festival took place. And the police was controlling everyone's IDs. And I was just really scared of being exposed and also in general of being seen. There were journalists as well taking pictures of being seen with neo-Nazis. I mean, I could always, of course, justify it because I could always show the book and the manuscript and, and show where I'm working, that I'm working for a counter-extremism organization. But still, it felt so strange. And then, of course, also, I was sometimes scared of, of the neo-Nazis also revealing my re real identity and then potentially either uh, beating me up straight away or harassing me online. And there were quite a few tricky moments where... I did almost, um, I, I made some really stupid mistakes. I also have to say, I'm not a professionally trained MI5 agent, or I never really learned how to do these undercover investigations. So it was all quite improvised in a sense. And there were also a few moments, for example, when I, when I was recruited by the white nationalist organization, Generation Identity, for example, once I signed my email with my real name. So I signed it with Julia instead of Jennifer. And I also dropped my credit card once, which, of course, had my full name on it as well. But luckily, they didn't find out or they didn't pick up the credit card. Wow. I mean, do you think that the social media platforms and the Internet outlets can do more to kind of stop the spreading of, of such hateful messages? Like, do you do you see a future when they might take a bit more responsibility over this stuff? Absolutely. And I think we've seen first signs of this happening basically since I would say the, the lethal Charlottesville attack against the two mosques in New Zealand mm -hmm. um, last year by a far-right terrorist, where this was a bit of a wake-up call to politicians, but also to the tech firms who were facing more and more pressure to actually to remove also violent extremist content on the far-right extremist side of the spectrum. Because they had been doing that for jihadist content for ISIS-related or Al-Qaeda-related content for years. And there was a bit of a time lag when it comes to far-right violence inciting content or even explicitly violent content. And we also see now with the, the coronavirus crisis that they are capable of really quickly removing, for example, pieces of disinformation when all the disinformation about 
alleged cures for coronavirus started being spread online, Twitter, Facebook, and most of the bigger platforms took immediate action or relatively quick action mm -hmm. to remove them because they knew how harmful it was. So I think there is um, there is a sense that there, there is more to be done, but of course it's also a very fine balance between freedom of speech and and um, yeah and, and security concerns. And I think in some of the cases, the far right extremists really know how to operate in that gray zone where it's not really illegal content, and they know it wouldn't be removed, but it's still harmful. And those, I'd say, we don't need to remove those pieces of content, but we need to challenge them. And even on that level, mm. tech companies could play a leading role in helping civil society to counter that. Yes, definitely. And I found it really interesting in your book when you spoke about the gamification as well and how young people, you know, as young as 14, I think it is, are sometimes kind of recruited or at least they follow these sorts of narratives on the Internet and it's almost like the way that these networks and apps and social media sites have been set up is to kind of get more rewards and get more feedback. And it's like a rabbit hole of notifications. Yes, this was one of the most terrifying parts of the research was to see young people, often not even politically interested or ideologically tainted in any way, get into, get lured into um, extremist channels and of, of all um, ideologies. So there was also a clear pattern that you could see both on the jihadist side, ISIS-related channels, but also the far-right extremists use um, gamification techniques, really almost make the recruitment process seem like it's a video game or um, make the propaganda look mm. like um, straight out of a, of a film, for example. And that was really quite appealing to some of the really young members. And you could even see minors joining these groups. And of course, then once they're in the channels, there's, um, it, it often happens quite rapidly, the whole socialization process, but then also the, the indoctrination can happen within days or, or at least a few weeks. Yeah. And I know that you talk a lot about education being super important. I mean, where do you think? that is lacking I, I know it's probably quite an obvious question you know that we need to kind of get this information into schools from like a really young age um, about this stuff because I feel like anything internet related beyond the basics of how to use a computer or whatever is sort of left off the curriculum for a lot of people I completely agree I mean uh, media literacy is really featuring more often now in the curricula across Europe also in the UK but that often deals with how do I distinguish between pieces of disinformation and, and credible sources or how, yeah, what, what does a radicalization campaign look like? But we haven't really gotten, getting to, to the heart of what's, what would be important for young people. But I think also for the older generations is how do these new, new online spaces also shape us as individuals? How can they change our identities? But also, how can they change us as societies? And what kind of group dynamics do they foster? Or do they, what, what kind of dynamics and offline problems like loneliness, like addiction, like potential mm. for radicalization, do they actually accelerate? And how do the algorithms work? And how can you avoid being drawn into, uh, into this? I think that those would be really important topics. So more like at the intersection with psychology or even with philosophy, I'd see a lot of potential for, for education that focuses on how the digital space is reshaping us as societies.
I've I've only recently really uh, heard about and sort of you know researched a tiny bit myself the incel community, and I know that in you know some popular culture even with like the film the joker when you know you've got someone who has got mental health problems or is very lonely and is let down by by their country or by their state do you think that we can use these films and tv shows and things like that to kind of show the problem or do you think it kind of glamorizes it sometimes i think it's uh, if it's well done I'd say it's pop culture and, and the movies industry and the arts are a really important element in, in educating people and raising awareness about certain issues and also tapping into topics that are usually considered taboo in, in conversations and also topics that we as researchers or even politicians can't really address in a more on a more emotional level because we, of course, we give the facts. So um, one of the reasons also that I wrote the book in a more journalistic language and also really um, why I tried to get inside of those movements was precisely because I wanted to get beyond that purely research-focused, facts-focused dimension to also cover the human layers of it. And I think that's something where films can be incredibly powerful and pieces of art can be incredibly powerful in conveying those more human and more emotional dimensions to, to the issues. It's so true. I can very much imagine going dark as a film. I think it would be super interesting. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll see the movie um, at some at some point. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you a little bit about, if you don't mind, how you did deal with that first kind of onslaught of online hate, because I know that it's probably quite different for journalists who are in the mix of it. But I do think a lot of people now are dealing, sadly, with negative comments or hateful abuse when they haven't really done anything to kind of validate it at all yeah how did you deal with that when it first happened I'm just curious whether you kind of tell other women to ignore it or to kind of go in and actually show show up these people because they don't expect it or what do you what's your advice now yeah I'm I'm not gonna lie it is incredibly challenging and I was really Mm. I would be lying if I said it didn't impact um, me as a person in my life and on a psychological level I've been I was really struggling with it a lot a lot in the beginning uh, when I had the first major hate campaigns against myself including sexual Mm. uh, but all sexual threats but also death threats then of course just a lot of insulting tweets or even on fringe forums indirect threats that the police couldn't deal with either because they couldn't identify the people behind it because it's an anonymous board or because they were too abstract to actually start an investigation. And what helped me a lot was um, to go on social media detox then for a few days whenever this, whenever another campaign kicked off and to really, I mean, it sounds really simple, but to really log off everything. And that for me, that even included the news. I just didn't want to deal with the topics anymore. But that's, of course, not everything. It's also, it also helps a lot to just feel safe to, uh, in terms of taking all the necessary cybersecurity steps to really make sure none of the private information is online and can be found by the trolls. So, uh, of course, doxing is becoming an increasingly, I think, terrifying phenomenon where lots of, especially female uh, politicians, political activists, even journalists um, and researchers and artists have been targeted with these doxing campaigns. So where their addresses or their personal details were leaked publicly. 
And I think one of the, the ways, um, or what helped me at least a lot was to feel safe on that level, to know that all my addresses, all, all my personal details have been removed and are no longer, can no longer be found on the internet. And yeah, and finally, also what, what did help with some of the trolls that were most active in, in these campaigns was actually reaching out to some of them. It doesn't always make sense, but if someone tweets at you with really insulting posts every single day, and that was the case for me, I found it really helpful to, to make them realize that you're a human being as well and that it's not just mm -hmm. an online account they can insult every day. So I wrote a direct message to one of them, for example, and he then actually apologized and said, I'm sorry, I didn't, I actually didn't want to, I mean, hurt you that, that much. I didn't realize. And mm -hmm. that transition that um, you then make sometimes in people's minds from being a, and they call it an NPC, a non-playable character, again, in reference to video games, where these are almost, yeah, anonymous, non-human beings that they, the, the way they think about some of the online accounts, make that transition from that NPC to a real human being. I think that can be quite helpful. Yeah, wow. That's so, so interesting, that sort of link between gaming. Not that all gaming is bad obviously but like that gaming culture of if you're so used to seeing something so virtually then maybe you would lose that human that human ability to kind of you know treat someone like they're real and that they're an actual human yeah. being it's interesting because I think I feel like we're all guilty of it to a certain extent even a tiny amount where you just see someone's profile picture and you don't quite know who that moving individual is behind it yeah, exactly. And I think that's also, again, that's something that should be addressed in educational settings to really yeah. um, see where, where it gets blurry, where the lines between what's online and what's offline get blurry, but also where it's, it's important to, to always keep in mind that um, a lot of people and there are studies that show that um, people do, the self-esteem is really affected by online, uh, by the online identity that the people set up in most people's heads, at least. and. I think it's also really important to raise awareness because, for example, when looking at the reactions following the, the Christchurch attack in New Zealand last year, you could really see that some of the, the fans um, that gathered around this live stream that the perpetrator posted on, on 8chan couldn't really distinguish anymore between what's real and what's just an online game. Some of them thought this was mm -hmm. all part of a, a so-called LARP, a live action role play. Or as some of them were posting in the next shooting that happened in the US in Poway, the first comment actually said, uh, get the high score, as if this was all a video game and the competition for mm. high scores. And the videos of, of these live streams and of these attacks were then turned into video alternatives where for each person, for each, each Muslim that was shot, for example, in Christchurch, they would give away points and scores. It was really terrifying to see how the gamification also worked to blur the, those lines between what's real and what's online and, and virtual. Oh my God, that's terrifying. I also see, I mean, there are also so many positive developments and I think the same tactics and same techniques that we're seeing used by, by fringe actors, by, by the most extreme voices, we also see the same tactics applied by really um, socially progressive movements that try to uh, to bring mm. about positive change, like the, the Fridays for, the, for Future and the climate change activists, where I think uh, a lot of the mobilization that happened online really played a big role in, in making this possible and having um, worldwide mobilization for such a positive cause. 
And the same is true for, for uh, networks that, for example, have helped victims of doxing or of harassment campaigns, where it's really important to connect on a global level, also to find solutions to these problems. So, yeah, of course, it's both a curse, but it's also a blessing to have the internet and to be so connected, especially now with coronavirus, I think more than ever revealed yeah. how important it also has become. So true. And did you find during all of this, did you find your own community of like-minded people who, I mean, of course, there's a lot of people out there who think this is all terrifying and will want to get, you know, get under the skin of it. But did you find any like fellow journalists or anyone who who helped you? Yes, it was really helpful to speak to other people and especially other women who were confronted with the same kind of harassment campaigns or same threats as you say, a lot of a lot of journalists, of course, but also there is a network, for example, in Germany called Hate Aid, uh, launched by a civil society organization that's called Fearless Democracy, and they really set up a network to connect people who are who are targeted by by online trolls for whatever reason. Most often, it's it is targeted by by being targeted by by neo Nazis or far right extremists, but it could also be by other groups and. And that really also helped to connect with other people and speak to them about how they deal with with such phases or hot periods of of campaigns against themselves. Mm. I wondered uh, just lastly, obviously, your book Going Dark is so brilliant, and everyone needs to go and read it. But is there anything next that you want to kind of uncover, or do you feel like you have to have a break after such big projects? That's a good question. I think for, at least for the undercover investigations, there was a bit of a timestamp on it from the very beginning. I knew that after being exposed by some of the groups, it, it made it virtually impossible to go undercover again, at least in the UK and in Germany. I think I'm kind of reached uh, the limits of what is possible mm -hmm. in, in offline settings. But online, I'm still monitoring a lot of the groups. And what I am increasingly interested in is how identities are shaped, as I said earlier, by uh, in these new virtual spaces, in some of these almost alternative online universes and subcultures that create their whole own language, their own insider jokes and, and cultural reference points. We could see that with the Christchurch attacker and also with a lot of the other terrorists um, that followed his pattern and that used exactly the same language, the same references, but there was a very strong in-group identity. And I'm, I'm interested in exploring how these identities come about in purely online settings. That's also what um, I'm doing my research on mainly right now, also for my, my PhD in Oxford, actually. That sounds amazing. Sounds so interesting. I know this is definitely lighter than the things that you are doing, but someone was telling me recently that a lot of journalists who are kind of doing, I don't know, some sort of reporting in other countries, they might use Tinder to like meet up with each other. And it just makes me think, are there platforms out there? They're being used in a way that we don't really know much about. I'd say, yeah, a lot of the platforms are also are used, of course, also to then meet offline eventually. And I was surprised to find so many different platforms that served entirely different purposes, also in the extreme mm. spectrum. So from, of course, they have created their own alternative social media platforms that frame themselves as freedom of speech, safe havens, but actually really give place, give, give a safe space for, for extremist voices. And then there are also dating apps for made purely for white supremacists. Then there are 
also crowdsourcing platforms where they can just fund their own, for example, hacking or harassment campaigns. And there are also places that look at first sight more like a self-help or a counseling service or forum. Like, for example, the, the female anti-feminist forum that I, that I joined, the Tradwives. They really looked, um, and they also, the way that the whole forum works is quite, I think is, is, is quite unique. They give advice to women on how to basically have a better relationship life and how, or how to find a husband or how to find a boyfriend. And when, when you spend more time in those channels, then you see how, how really ultra conservative some of their views are. And some of them are even inciting violence against women. So the ideological indoctrination again happens rather and in a second stage, or right, is not always visible in, at first sight. And I think that was something that characterized a lot of these spaces that use either counseling or also hobbies as, as gateways or starting points. The same is true for some of the gaming online platforms, where, of course, not the whole gaming scene is to be connected with, with the extremist networks, but a lot of extremist groups have tapped into those gaming platforms and tried to bring to really to attract more members tapping into these subcultures so so fascinating and like you say it feels like anyone can be approached in their natural habitat online if they're feeling vulnerable then it might be quite easy to fall into a trap i think in in almost every extremist group that i joined i caught myself feeling empathy feeling some form of understanding for why they ended up there for their grievances, for for their fears, because they were all very human. And although I, I didn't share um, the fears in, in, in most of the cases, I didn't actually share the fears. I could still understand and, and kind of empathize with them. That doesn't mean that I sympathize at any point with their ideologies. But mm -hmm. then there was also one case where I actually found myself really close to getting radicalized myself. That was in the trad wives mm. in, in those um, in this network of female misogynists, basically, where I, I would consider myself as a feminist. But I, I went in there and I spent a lot of time in this forum at a moment when I was myself in a very vulnerable position. I just I had a breakup and I, I questioned my role as a woman, also re relationships in general. So that really, I think that really did something to me and that showed me how vulnerable everyone can be in a weak moment and it's just for, for them they're so skillful in bringing out those levels and then also mm -hmm. using questions um, that we pose to ourselves or doubts or fears also about double burdens that that women are facing or about the, the so-called hookup culture or online dating apps things that are often not i think not enough addressed in other conversations where they just are really skillful in tapping into those fears and turning them into con sometimes conspiracy theories or just into embracing their ideologies. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for talking to me today. I feel like this is a small snapshot of how brilliant your book is and I hope everyone goes and buys it. If people want to follow your work uh, a bit more closely or just checking in on, on what you're working on, where can people find you? What's the best way? I think the best way is probably to contact me via ISD. Of course, please do buy the books because at the moment on Twitter, I'm not very active, to be honest, because I've had a few more campaigns. So I'm trying to, uh, yeah, to, right. to step a bit away from the social media sphere. Yes, understandable. Twitter can be the worst place in the world sometimes. 
Exactly. Well, thank you. And thank you for all the work that you do. It's really, really incredible. And um, yeah, it's been really lovely talking to you. Hopefully we will meet in person one day. So I was really looking forward to that. (laughs) Thanks a lot for having me. Amazing. Thanks, Julia. Bye. Have a lovely day.